Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. When we introduced the Chinese Super League a few seasons ago, you know, I, I had to go to somebody who was very expert in sort of sports business and sports finance in China to sort of get that original data. And, and through people that I'd worked with journalistically, who I knew were in experts in China, they in turn managed to access to me an internal Chinese Super League document that that had that original data in it that gave the salary levels across the team at team level. So once we actually had an internal document, which was basically an, an internal audit showing that. Guangzhou have a grand salary bill was X and we knew that they had 32, you know, 46 professionals, 32 of whom were first team and their coach was paid this because we had the coaching salary separately. We were able to do what we wanted to do and needed to do for the survey, which is come up with an average first team figure. In 2010, journalist Nick Harris produced an annual report called the Global Sports Salary Survey, comparing athletes' wages on a like-for-like basis from major sports around the world. In 2018, the report now covers all the major football leagues, NBA basketball, NFL, NHL, IPL cricket and more. Here, Nick tells us how he pulls it all together thanks to a huge amount of expertise and an army of contacts around the world. If you know Nick's Sporting Intelligence website or follow him on Twitter, you'll have some inkling as to the authority with which he writes about the business of sport. So I wanted to get to a, a situation where we could give authoritative numbers to sort of compare how major stars in big sports leagues how their earnings compared so if you had a room with 100 people in it and and some of them were NBA basketball players and some of them were Premier League footballers and some of them were AFL Aussie rules players or some of them were Japanese baseball stars that you could sort of say typically that guy will earn this this guy will earn this this guy will earn this and not only that but specific teams if you're a Manchester United player they will typically earn this if you're a New York Yankees baseball player you will earn this if you play for um, whatever team is in whatever sport just to give a basic comparison so that's that was the idea of it and the reason the first survey was conceived it, it, the first one came out in 2010 really to sort of publicize the launch of sporting intelligence as a website um, and that's the basic idea behind it to sort of um, um, do something that had never been done before which is compare very different sports in different countries and to give people an idea you know, about how vastly different um, earnings are in different sports to perhaps um, challenge people's preconceptions you know, uh, um, and also to show that you, know, you don't necessarily need to be paying people loads of money to have a massively successful, well-attended, competitive sport. Aussie rules in Australia for example is fantastically competitive one of the best attended sports leagues in the world but massively less paid than leagues in say football in Europe and other leagues yeah I mean I just want to reflect on the latest um, 
survey which came out in November 2017, 140-page special edition. I think it's been downloaded nearly 4,000 times, coverage in just about every major news outlet in the world. But um, some of the news points from that were interesting. Um, for example, uh, Oklahoma City Thunder of the NBA are now the best team in global, uh, best paid team in global sport. Uh, average first uh, team pay is 7.15 million per year. Uh, seven of the top payers in this year's uh, survey are NBA teams. Um, so again, that gives you a, a fantastic insight into, uh, I think you referred to uh, in your news story about it, is the relentless march of the NBA. So you get a, a wonderful insight into um, where that sport's at commercially and in relation to all these other sports as well. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people, when they see that NBA teams are very well paid, say to me and the feedback is, well, of course they are because there's only 15 people per roster and therefore small teams. Actually, it's not even true. The NBA didn't become so dominant in the way it is now in this year's survey and, and slightly last year's survey until there was a massive new TV deal in the NBA in 26, that came online in 2016. Before that, European football teams, the top echelons of European football teams, dominated the top 10 but a new pay deal in the NBA which I think off the top of my head is worth 24 billion dollars over nine years suddenly came online giving every every NBA player an average pay increase of two million dollars a year at the drop of a hat so suddenly the top echelons of this list are dominated by NBA so it's not per se that of course they're going to be richer because there's only 15 men per roster that's not the case it is the case that, that, that them flooding the top 10 and the top 20 places now is a direct result of NBA basketball in America having a massive new TV deal which speaks to its popularity in America. And, and the, the survey and the nuances of the survey are sort of much deeper than, than some of these preconceptions that people have. They have this preconception that NFL, which we all know is the American sport yeah. in every way is not the best paid. NFL, per man, is, is not as well paid as NHL ice hockey. I mean, people think, what? Sure, everyone in the NFL earns $20 million. No, mm-hmm. they don't. The, the median, the typical salary for an NFL player is under, well, it's around $1 million a year. Um, and, 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 and in a 53-man roster, a couple of guys will be earning 15 or $20 million, and a load of them will be earning some hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is part of what the survey was intended to do, you know, bust a few myths and actually yeah. encourage people to think about, um, um, you know, how pay structures actually work and, and more broadly, and probably haven't got time to talk about this in great depth now, but more broadly to also look at the relationship between pay and performance and our team owners getting value for money, our fans getting for value for money. You know, we can go down all kinds of rabbit holes and different avenues now. Is the Premier League now in England too rich? Has it got too much money, you know, compared to other leagues? Does being so rich mean that the Premier League players are being paid so much more than actually they deserve to be in a way that they aren't being paid that in Italy or Spain? All these questions are actually kind of why I wanted to do the survey, to allow people to have these debates about value for money as well as comparing different sports in different countries. I mean, it must have been fascinating to track the the inexorable rise of English Premier League football as well over this period. I know you started it back in 2010 compared to 2017. Uh, it's interesting you talk about how the makeup of the list has changed in relation 
to uh, the NBA growth this year but um, you still got well, Barcelona at number 4 um, PSG number 5 Real Madrid number 7 Man United and Man City 23 and 24 um, but you know the Premier League remains the richest and best paid football league in the world um, annual pay uh, weekly pay I think rose to over £50,000 per week um, for the first time um, which uh, a global first for any football league um, and then you compare it to the weekly average in La Liga is 32,000, Serie A is 25, Bundesliga is 24, League One is 18, which is probably distorted by the PSG figures as well. Uh, um, so that must have been really interesting to you because um, you write about English football a lot and to see the, the, the rise and rise of, of um, that as a commercial enterprise must have been really interesting for you. Absolutely, and, and, and as you say, I mean, the reason I sort of picked on this is because I sort of had a level of expertise in football business and finance, and so I, I knew it was an, an area that I could explore with some authority. But yeah, I've been working in national newspapers since the, the mid-90s, early-90s, pretty much along the same timeline of the Premier League, the English Premier League, which obviously started in 1992-93. So I already had a a level of knowledge around sort of wages and money and finance, and I've actually followed that very closely ever since, and I have a lot more information. There's a lot of articles and stuff on the Sporting Intelligence website that goes into the background of this, and that shows you that sort of in those early years of the Premier League, back in 92-93, the average annual salary... I haven't got the figure right to the top of my head, but very roughly the average annual salary was about £100,000 a year for a Premier League footballer. So you talk about £2,000 a week, it might be slightly more than that. And this is sort of, you know, 25 years ago, you're talking about £2,000 a week. And as you say now, this current season, 17-18, for the first time in any football league in the world, the average typical salary in the Premier League now has risen above £50,000 a week for the first time from just 25 years ago being £2,000 a week. And that's, that's entirely, almost entirely a product of the TV money rising from the clubs getting an average of, I think it was about £2 million per season each club back in those early years of the Premier League. And now, as, if, as in the last season gone, uh, the average is £125 million just of Premier League TV money per season. So the TV money has gone up more than 60-fold, and, uh, and the wages have pretty much tracked that. The, mm. You know, there's a direct correlation. The more money the clubs have, the more that the wages have gone up, and that is obviously replicated in pretty much every elite football league. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of... Um Newsier points to come out of this year's report. You, you've you've branded it the gender inequality issue. Uh, I thought that some of that stuff was really interesting. You said includes an audit that quantifies the gulf between men's and women's professional team sport, both in terms of opportunity and pay. Can you reflect a little bit on that and some of the found uh, the, the findings that you came across while looking into that? Yeah. Um to keep it sort of to boil it down really simplistically because there's a lot of nuance and I would encourage people if they're interested to read the report there's a lot of nuance but basically what we found is that for every 100 professional sports men in the world in team sports and professional being defined they make their living their full living from their playing their sport for every 100 professional sports men in the world there were fewer than one professional sports women in the world in team sports and not only that but for those women that do actually make a living in professional sport particularly team sport they earn around one hundredth 
of what the men earn. So not only are there more than 100 times as many professional sports men in the world, but they also, each of them, earn more than 100 times what the women earn. And I can give you a very specific example. The MBA, the men's MBA, where, as you said, the average salary is seven point um, whatever million dollars, I think it is. And, and the women's MBA, the WNBA, is by far the best paid women's sports league in the whole world. The average there is 70 something thousand dollars a year. And again, I think it's 93 or 97 times as much that the men earn. This is, this is in a sports culture, in a sports society, America, that is the most advanced in terms of commercial exploitation of sports and sports rights, and women's sport, actually, um, arguably. And yet, the disparity there in this very developed league and very, very developed country is that the men earn you know, more than 100 times more than the women. Now, it's important to say that it's very obvious why you know, men's sport, men's professional sport, there are more professional sportsmen and, and the men are more. And I say this in the report. It's an absolute no-brainer that men get paid more because they get bigger TV deals, bigger audience, bigger commercial contracts. There's no questioning that. That's entirely logical. That's entirely right, if you want to put it in that point. It's a no-brainer. That's not the issue here. That it's kind of, that's easy. What the report really tries to do is to actually sort of start asking the question... Why is this the case? And, and does it have to be this way? And why should it be that, you know, men's sport is more popular than women's sport and, and, and media covers men's sport more? And, and it's all these very deep and complex and much more layered, nuanced issues that the report is trying to address. And we do that through looking at case studies of, say, English football in England and how the governing body might be um, uh, subsidising it. In Australia, fascinating case studies of what they're doing with the new Aussie Rules Women's League that started in 2017 with the women's cricketers in Australia and how the Australian Cricket, cricket Australia are, are actually sort of growing women's professional sport by investing in it. It's much more nuanced than just saying, well, women's sport is rubbish and nobody watches it and there's no fans and no TV deals, so of course they're not paid. We know that. That's, it's much more complex than that. It's an issue about, you know... Well, is that right? If it is, why is this not sociologically interesting? Can we change it? You know, why did the Women's Cricket World Cup final in 2017 get 100 million TV viewers if it's a rubbish sport that nobody cares about? Why did it get you know, more viewers, even on Sky in the UK, than any men's cricket match did in 2017? You know, this is, these are questions that I think are worth exploring. Yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about like debunking myths, and, and I guess that that's that that's part of what you're talking about here, isn't it? It's like, well, actually, when you put a magnifying glass over this particular area, is it the case that uh, women's sport is just not popular? Because yeah, that's just such an easy thing to say, isn't it? But when you actually look at the numbers and how they equate to um, to the commercial. Off, off spins if you like it's it's quite unusual you know to have to have you know these two poles isn't it one aim of doing the um 
you know, the gender inequality issue. And it took a couple of years, actually, because I needed to get hold of the data. And in the end, it was really grateful for the WNBA that, that a source there provided me with the official figures for the salary earnings at the WNBA, which in turn allowed me to go to other governing bodies and the English FA helped and in turn other bodies helped me greatly to get the data. But one of the points of trying to do that was actually for the first time ever to actually quantify it because before you have a proper debate around the issues, it's good to have the facts and and that's what Sport Intelligence tries to deal with. We fail, obviously, on things uh, sometimes, but what we try to do always is get the facts. So the first point was to get, it's a data gathering exercise where we can get authoritative information to say, well, what is the actual situation here? And so we went and we quantified, we did an audit, which itself took quite a long time to try and quantify the amount of professional footballers in the world who are men and who are women. You think this sounds quite easy. It's very difficult because nobody really holds the data. FIFA don't hold the data. UEFA don't hold the data. A lot of FAs don't hold the data. They've all got different definitions about what a professional is and what their level is. So even to say how many professional male footballers are in the world is a very difficult question to answer. So even something as supposedly simple as that quantifying how many professional male footballers there are in the world and how many women is quite a difficult thing. But we did that and we, you know, and, and, and on top of that, we then tried to, you know, have tried to ascertain these are the best paid leagues and this is what, you know, women's big bash cricketers in Australia earn and this is what women in league, you know, the uh, Division One feminine in France earn and this is what Premier League footballers earn and this is WNBA players and just... The starting point was to gather reliable and accurate information to actually quantify what we're even looking at. And then on top of that, then you, that gives us a basis on which we can start you know, exploring other relevant questions which, you know, around, around um, marketing or TV or attendance or participation, you know, because this is, this is a huge societal issue. You know, gender equality is a big issue in, in all areas of life, from politics to business to, you know, we're speaking on a, on a morning here, you know, recording this when a story around something called the President's Club is dominating the headlines. You know, gender equality and fairness and, and how people behave and, and the role of all of us in, that, in our relevant societies is a huge issue. And there's no, absolutely no reason why it shouldn't and couldn't be the same in sport. We should be having these, these debates. I mean, you know, should women's sport... And does women's sport have a right to exist and be promoted and be funded? Does it, you know, should the media, and by that I mean me as a journalist, and companies that I've worked for and you and everyone else, should we be giving more space to women's sport simply because it exists? And there's definitely an argument that we could be doing more and we could be helping to promote the sports. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a huge debate. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This must be a hugely time-consuming project for you. I mean, talk us through, you know, the, the, the efforts you go to to accumulate some of the data that you're talking about here. Okay, I'll try and keep it as brief <laughs> as possible. But in, in the very first salary survey which came out in 2010 the rationale of which had just 10 leagues in it is now expanded to all these different leagues in sports but the rationale for why did I pick the first 10 leagues that were in it which were the Premier League and uh, Syria and um, didn't have League One at that point I think it had La Liga didn't have the Bundesliga at that point but it did have the NBA the NFL the NHL it had Japanese baseball, which I'll come back to, and it had Aussie rules football. But the, the first 10 leagues, the rationale for including those, and it also had Scottish football, but the rationale, and, and MLS, but the rationale was, I want to include the leagues that are, by definition, the world's most popular, as defined by, that have the biggest average match attend, live match attendance by people going to them. And those top 10 leagues in the world were, in order at that point, NFL, number one league in the world, it's got biggest professional attendance 67,000 people per match the number two league in the world at that time was Aussie rules football second highest best attended sports league in the world by average attendance per match 42,000 or something mm. at the time then it was the Premier League and La Liga so that's how the first 10 months and Japanese baseball is in that as well and so was so that's how the leagues were picked um, the Bundesliga would have been in there but at that point I wasn't confident enough that I would have all the data I would need to include them. Um, I don't think they were including the first one. So once I decided what the leagues were, it was a case of how, can, how easily can I get the data. So for quite a lot of the leagues, the data is uh, readily accessible or, or quite easy to because it's in the public domain. You can find out NFL salaries and you can find out NBA salaries. When it came to the football um, salaries, in terms of um, my, my own sort of expertise in terms of football salaries, and again, this I'm going to take a little bit of a diversion here, but when I was um, a staff writer at The Independent a long time ago, back in 2000 and again in 2006, I did two large surveys in association with the Professional Football Association, the PFA, into what football players, um, all aspects of footballers' lives, including what they earned, whereby we sent questionnaires to all the professional footballers in England, all the divisions in England, asking them all sorts of stuff about their careers. And it was a confidential survey. Um, it, in both occasions, it resulted in sort of a week-long series of articles about all kinds of aspects of footballers' lives and what they thought about everything from discipline to foreign footballers to did they gamble to sexism, racism, homophobia, all good pieces of work, really interesting stuff. But one of the key things that we gathered was salary information from the horse's mouth. These players confidentially told us in their hundreds directly what they earned. So we gathered very valuable data sets. So I already, from what we're talking about 18 years, 19 years ago now, already had quite a good insight to pay structures and how things work within football. So I had that pre-existing knowledge and, and sort of access to various... Um, people and organisations and stuff that allowed me to sort of, when I was doing this exercise, to either go back and start asking people, including individual footballers, but club chairman, ownership level in some cases, finance officers, you know, what their salary levels were like at, at their club in terms of first team squads and stuff. And I could also 
um, cross-referenced this with what I knew about the relationship between what is declared in official club accounts in terms of salaries and what part of that body of money is paid to the players and in turn to the first team players. So I'm sticking just now for the moment with Premier League Mm. football. So when I was calculating for that first salary survey what the Premier League average was in the first season that we did the survey... I had a combination, it wasn't so many years after that 2006 survey where we had this data that we could build on. I knew the relationship between what is declared in accounts and what we had, what we know of first team salaries. So uh, the methodology in the early global sports salary surveys was to sort of work from what we knew about declared income and then cross reference it and check it with the individual clubs, sometimes with players themselves, but with agents, with financial officers, with ownership level at different clubs to come up with the average first team salary because Mm. that's the other thing about the survey it's not about saying this player earns this much individual I don't have access to Lionel Messi's actual contract or to know what Alexis Sanchez is paid but I can tell you quite accurately what the average salary at Manchester United is because of X, Y and Z Later on, in recent years, we've actually changed the methodology. So now we do, in fact, source an individual figure for each individual player, which is sort of a whole different ballgame. But um, um, and it's more sophisticated, and I think is probably even more accurate uh, than it was back then. But whereas I did that, say for the Premier League myself, because my own expertise and my own knowledge of what was happening in and around individual clubs and whatever, um, you know, I could do that for the Premier League. I consciously for the first survey went out and found other people in those markets basically got to know a couple of people in Germany in Italy who were doing similar work there and had access to similar information mm-hmm. so for those leagues I was relying on their expertise and then again I could cross reference it but, it, but yeah it, it, it's a huge job but once mm-hmm. you've done it the first time yeah. and realised that you've got to hear and, and, and incidentally the very first global salary survey and the New York Yankees a baseball team were number one in the world and you know I think Real Madrid and Barcelona were up there and there, were, there was a couple of basketball teams in there and the Bayern Munich I think were in the top ten as they've been but there was a you know the patterns changed but once we'd done that first survey when we moved on to the second survey it sort of it evolved so I already knew what was difficult and what was hard where we you know what we could do to, to change it and make it better and more accurate and it and over Eight years now, the 2017 was the eighth edition of it. It's evolved and changed, and I think got better and more accurate um, in terms of that information gathering process. So, yeah, it's a building process, and it's a process about knowing that we're always going to be imperfect, um, but, but that we're going to you know, keep going and, and evolving it to the point where you know, I can defend quite clearly what our figures are in terms of saying, you know, this is, you know, this is the average salary in the Scottish Premiership, for example. You know, the average is whatever it is, £130,000, and this is what it is in MLS. And know that this is, you know, the best, most reliable information out there. In terms of having reliable information, you know, one other thing that I have done and that we still do now as sporting intelligence sort of consultancy sort of type work, particularly around English football, and um, which is where sort of our real most deepest expertise is, is working in lots of earnings cases for footballers who've had their careers ended. And probably, certainly to date, and certainly in terms of the public that's already in the public domain, the most high-profile case that I've worked on was um, 
Manchester United footballer who had his leg broken and was awarded what was at the time the biggest damages payment for any professional footballer. He was awarded more than four million pounds damages for having his career ended. And, and that was basically awarded in the High Court by Justice Swift in, I think, uh, Mrs. Justice Swift in about 2008, I can't remember the exact year. Largely on the basis, the actual amount was awarded on the basis of the PFA Independent Salary Survey that we'd done in 2005-06 season. Wow. Because so little is authoritatively known about what players actually get paid that the, that there is no other res- there is no resource out there, yeah. even in something as serious as a court case, to decide, you know, what somebody, you know, could claim or be awarded in a in a in a loss of earnings case. Yeah. And so now, but we're now at the point where, you know, we have quite granular data about what. Um, you know what people have earned over the last 25 years and what they do earn now at different levels say in the Premier League in the Championship in League 1 and League 2 you know to a degree you can even go into sort of the difference between goalkeepers and strikers and midfielders this is not stuff that's in the report it's much too granular for the report mm. it's not even on the website necessarily but we've got data sets where you can explore this stuff you know mm-hmm. what, what players at different ages get paid you know even and we touched upon this in the report, I think it was the 2015 report, we looked at what players of different nationalities get paid. Mm-hmm. And there's quite, you know, there's a big difference, you know. Um, uh, Belgian players, as a cohort, regardless of where they play in the world, and most of them are top flight clubs, we, we, you know, more highly paid as a group than players of pretty much any other nationality, which in itself is interesting. Mm-hmm. So what is in the salary survey each year is hopefully... A good starting point for people and is hopefully quite comprehensive but really it's it's nothing more than a jumping off point at which you can look at much other much you know much deeper into a whole range of other issues sometimes when we are out and about um with back page and book events and stuff people will say to myself and neil or do you guys work for back page because they have this image of back page being this huge company that publishes these um big commercial sports books and we do publish big commercial sports books but we're two guys in a room publishing those books and the sacrifices we have to make are enormous and um, so much goes into that process and I look at you and I think well you obviously bring a huge degree of expertise you're an investigative journalist but you're an extremely hard working investigative journalist is there anyone behind you? I mean, you've referred to we a couple of times. Do you have any kind of support base for this? Um, does anyone else help you accumulate this data? Or is this just you burrowing away um, in your bedroom year on year getting this stuff down? Yeah, um, Sporting Intelligence. I, I started Sporting Intelligence uh, by myself in 2009. It sort of went first online in 2010. Sporting Intelligence Limited is the, is the company. Um, so it, it, it's me, I'm the sole owner and sole director of Sports Intelligence, but, it, but it, always from the beginning, it was always my intention that it would be a collab, whatever we, I did, you know, I wanted to work collaboratively with people, so that would be whoever else wanted to come on board, whoever wanted to write for it, and all sorts of people who have written for the website and contributed it to it, from... 
people in sports business and people who work for clubs and governing bodies and across a whole range of articles. But in terms of the survey, that's, that's also the same case. The survey is not just me. I've needed to rely on expertise mm. for different places and different leagues and sports that I don't know anything about from people who are expert, much more expert than me, whether it's about Japanese baseball salaries or German football salaries or whatever. So in terms of a purely practical, logistical sense, mm. so where I need to get that information, you know, there will be a subcontracting arrangement with me asking somebody to go and do this piece of work for me for this particular league. I mean, I obviously have the overview. You know, I structure the survey, I put it together, I write the copy, you know, I do all the number crunching. But in terms of the data... Um, where it's easily accessible for me and I've already established where the relationships where I know I can go and get the data myself and can get it, I do it and that's, so all the original leagues, that's fine. For other leagues and stuff that I won't necessarily know when we introduced the Chinese Super League a few seasons ago, you know I, I had to go to somebody who was very expert in sort of sports business and sports finance in China to sort of get that original data and, and through people that I'd worked with journalistically who I knew were in experts in China, they in turn managed to access to me an internal Chinese Super League document that, that had that original data in it that gave the salary levels across the team at team mm. level to each of the Super League teams whenever it was that we first included them three years ago. So once we actually had an internal document which was basically an, an internal audit showing that Guangzhou have a grand salary bill was X and we knew that they had 32, you know, 46 professionals, 32 of whom were first team and their coach was paid this because we had the coaching salary separately we were able to do what we wanted to do mm. and needed to do for the survey which is come up with an average first team figure and then, obviously, once we've got that base, we can work on that. The following year, I knew who to go back to to get the data from. So, in terms of this specific exercise, no, it's definitely a collaborative process. And you can see from the acknowledgements at the back of all the people who sort of helped. Yeah, it's an interesting insight into um, what journalism should be about. And, like, when you were talking about the collaborative nature of the, the survey, um, you know, that, that, you know, got my blood pumping there because that, to me, is what true journalism should be about like contact building and exercising contact building and identifying reliable trustworthy sources that you know um, you can trust the data from I mean that's that's a huge part of what proper journalism should be about isn't it absolutely and and it's interesting to see sort of the feedback from this I mean you know different sort of fan groups who see this stuff are all sort of very knowledgeable about their own league or whatever so when in previous years we've done a, a survey say with MLS data, you know, there's not really any debate to be had because they know that the source is already, you know, it's, there's just no argument about the source. Yeah. It's all there and it's public. With some leagues where, say, the, the information is not, is not public in the same way, say Scottish football, where people are very, very keen, you know, we're sitting here in Glasgow and, and we know the debates there are around Rangers and Celtic and how, uh, what's the best term I should use, lively that debate is always around the old firm and, and, and the rivalry between these clubs. But also elsewhere in, in, in the top flight of Scottish football, people are very interested, Aberdeen's fans, Hearts fans, Hibs fans, you know, they're interested in sort of what is their financial deficit compared to Celtic or whatever and people look at the figures and in, in recent years I, I have noticed a real debate about people saying I can't believe how badly paid Kilmarnock are and surely Hamilton can't be earning only that much or whatever it is and it's actually been interesting in recent years to see club owners and chairmen and financial officers and in some cases managers asked about my figures in press conferences mm. and they're going yeah, we've seen these figures, and, and this tallies with what we know to be the case. You know, you're, you're actually, there was, um, 
uh, one of the guys, Aberdeen's owner or chief exec, was asked it a few weeks ago about you know the figures from this year's salary survey were put to him in an interview, and he said, "Well, this is the reality that we face." Now, I'm not saying that you know he gave me their his players' weight bill because he absolutely didn't, but you know. People who work in, in the game can look at the figures that we've got and say, yeah, we recognise that because, because this is right. And those figures ultimately come from, because, you know, I'm not going to put numbers out there that I don't believe in. Are they going to be, you know, 100% accurate to the last pound? Almost certainly not, because nothing ever is, because everything changes every time someone signs a new contract anyway. Are they absolutely defensible and based on the best possible sources that, that you know, I can get my hands on them? Could go out there and, and say, this is the figure you know, for this club or this league. And comparatively to all the others, you know, this is the situation, absolutely. And that is down to the fact that you, know, you build up sources and you build up people who have a level of trust in what you do. And you, that's why it's out there. Finally, I, I just wanted to ask you about your original intention, which you know was to do something that would spread out and have a, a big impact. And and to me, the the salary survey seems to have had quite a huge global impact. Um, I mean, every year when you put it out, there's news stories are plenty. Global news outlets seem to pick it up. CNN, BBC. Has it been? mission accomplished as, as far as you're concerned uh, it certainly did the job it, it intended to do because as I said I set it up to try and use it sort of as, a, as an exercise to raise awareness about this new website that was going live in 2010 so um, in arrangement you know knowing that the website was going to go fully live on this particular date in late March early April 2010 I had you know by arrangement uh, spoken to an editor a sports editor that I knew at the Sunday Telegraph and they said look we're going to write a piece we're going to write a piece about it saying you know today a new website launches and you know the New York Yankees are the best paid team in sport and Manchester United are here there so they wrote an article um, that day which in turn got picked up by um, Reuters I think who saw the Telegraph and sort of reported you, you know that a new survey a new website says such and such and as soon as something gets picked up by Reuters, I think the BBC picked it up within maybe the next day. As soon as it got put on the BBC website, Sporting Intelligence as a website crashed and stayed crashed for the next two days because the click-throughs from being on the BBC website were so big, and you talk about thousands of click-throughs a minute, that Sporting Intelligence actually ended up not functioning for the first two days of its life because it had been too successful. Yeah. And suddenly, once Reuters have picked it up and it goes around the world as a story and then suddenly all sorts of other news agencies are picking it up and it, and it was much, much, much more successful in terms of publicity than I could ever have imagined. In terms of where it goes now, you know, um, a, bit like, a bit like the website itself, there's a, not a sort of ongoing debate about, you know, how long can it last, what is the purpose of it. The reason I did um, the gender equality thing this year particularly is because I was really interested in that issue and I thought, you know, maybe if, you, you know, it's, it's, not, it's only been out for a few months, maybe it in turn will lead to, to things, of, you know, that people will want to know more about this and we can do deeper research into it. You know, do I intend to do one this year, 2018? I do, and I've got some. I've got. I've got some ideas around. You know what the theme could be for this year. It'll possibly be World Cup themed. It will possibly look at the earnings in different um, countries in terms of different. You know, uh, nationalities of what the teams at this summer's World Cup 
you know, what is the average salary of an England player this summer against what is the average salary of an Egyptian player against what is the average salary of an Icelandic player? You know, and what does that tell us about, you know, migration and football cultures in different countries and football economies? That's, that's something I'm looking at that might be a theme. Thanks to Nick for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with Nick on Twitter at Sporting Intel and check out sportingintelligence.com. Also, globalsportsalaries.com is where you can download the report. If you like this, we ask only one thing. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you've read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.